0: And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci Fi for Me Radio is live from the bunker.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we go once again, unto the breach, dear friends. Welcome to the program. We are live from the bunker. Everybody say hi, Todd. My name is Jason Hod. I am the editor here at SciFi4Me.com. Happy to have all of you with us, those of you who are with us live. And if you are not here with us live, that's okay, too do this one thing my camera looks a little bright the future is bright I gotta wear shades let's get that let's get that where it's supposed to be there because I didn't adjust that before we went on the air this is live television ladies and gentlemen here we go all right uh yeah shout out to everybody who is here with us live if you're not with us live you can still leave a comment you can send us an email live from the bunker at sci fi for mecom Join us on all the socials. Discord is active and hopping. People can jump in there and, and share thoughts and share links. And, hey, this is a news item that I found and, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, so So do check that out. <coughs> Connect with us. We got a newsletter you can sign up for. I mean, there's all sorts of things. That you can do. Oh, hey! I'm just noticing on that crawl it says become a member. I don't have memberships active right now. Should we reactivate memberships, Mrs. Boss? Do you think we should reactivate memberships? Maybe wait until we get 2,500 subscribers. <laughs> stick with it. Uh, yeah, like if we can if we can stay above 2,500 uh, instead of hitting 2,500, then 2,501, and then 24.99, I and mean, we come on. <clears throat> Maybe. Possibly. I don't know. I mean, it'd be easier to update the crawl. (laughs) But maybe we'll reactivate memberships. I don't know. We'll see. All right. Lots of stuff happening. Breaking, breaking news today. (coughs) We have a trailer. We have a trailer for the... X Men animated series X Men ninety seven. So if any of you are excited about this, or if you're cautiously optimistic about this, um, there I, I guess I mean we could we could go through this trailer if y'all want to see the trailer. I'm gonna put a link to it. Those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, I will put a link to this trailer in our notes so you can watch it. Do you guys wanna you guys wanna watch? I don't know. Do we want to watch it? Mrs. Boss, you've seen it. Do you think we ought to play it? I mean we might get a we might get a ding. I mean we always <coughs> won't get a ding. So here's here's the animated uh ninety seven. So this is the opening shot here where you see uh Cyclops and Gene in the corner there. Let me embiggen this so people can see it. Cyclops and Gene in the corner in a photograph. There's a TV there with a VCR. Some of us will remember VCRs. You got some VHS tapes across the top. X-Men cartoon, X-Men Christmas special, X-Men, I don't know what this is. Uh, Oh, Days of Future Past. And then you've got an uh, uh, X-Men Colossus figure. Over here in the corner. So there's our opening shot as we come into the television and we hear the of X-Men next Saturday morning. Check your local listings.
0: I'm grateful to have the chance to say goodbye.
1: Now I should I should probably yeah, we should probably say there are spoilers here because this is the last episode of the original show that they are showing here. And Mrs. Boss has not completely gone through the run. So some of you out there might not have seen the original X-Men animated series. So there are spoilers. And if you want to kind of turn away, I guess I could give some kind of a what? I don't know how to signal that we're back. So you could turn the volume down at least. And I'll give you a little bit of a waiver or something so you don't get there are spoilers in this. They're, they're minor because it's not anything that we haven't seen already in the articles talking about where we're picking up the story. So, just, just, that's, just, that's it. So we have a clip here from the original show. Fate lies in our hands now. 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 And this is the new, this is new. Marvel Animation. This is a brand new label. We have not seen this before. This is not Marvel Studios. This is Marvel Animation. So they're doing something, they're doing something with this. It will be interesting to see. Now, okay. So so Michael raises a good point. If you offer a membership, you must also offer you must offer a perk. Your show is free, Discord is free. What's left besides your eternal thanks? Just saying. Well, <laughs> there's that. Um, with the memberships, and and we never really got into that part because we only had two sign up for memberships. So if if we were to re reestablish memberships, I imagine there will probably be. Uh, some perks attached to that, like members-only streams, and uh, you know, notif- certain notifications and certain sections of the Discord that would be members-only uh, areas for for conversation and such. I, really, I, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. Because I'm I'm not one of those people who, and I guess maybe this is a mistake on my part. It it may be, it may be that I don't I don't really see the point of putting a bunch of stuff behind a paywall because that's very frustrating for people, especially if you're talking about news news, news stuff. So, I don't know. I, it's, it's still a little nugget that's running around in my head. Uh, Cam says, according to Empire Magazine, their non-buyer take on Morph. Okay. Let me get through this. We'll get through this, this, this trailer, and then I'll come back. I'll circle back to address that. Because I'm, I, I, I have not been able to source that. All right. So, here, let's, let's go back to this. So, trailer.
0: There we go. We have to stay vigilant.
1: Okay, so here, <coughs> we have to stay vigilant. Uh, the Daily Bugle exists in uh, the the '97. But you see here uh, a mention of the Hellfire Gala, which a lot of people are seeing. They're going, "Oh crap, the Hellfire Gala!" If this is in '97, this may not necessarily be the Hellfire Gala that you that you see now in the comics. Because back then, the Hellfire Club was the villain's hangout. But you notice here also, it says, text by Eddie Brock, photos by Peter Parker. (laughs) So, Eddie Brock and Peter Parker are in this universe. Spider-Man is in this universe. Is Spider-Man a mutant? He's a menace! All right,
0: continuing. The professor entrusted us with his dream. Matter how dark it is, we must believe in each other. We get this done by working together as a team.
1: Now you'll notice here, a <clears throat> couple of things. Uh, we've got Bishop in the group. Uh, Storm is wearing her '90s haircut. <clears throat> Which okay, and then morph is back here, and you see morph is looking a little bit uh unformed. I'm not sure what that is and and we'll we'll get to that here in a second, what people are saying it could be um so here's here's the team. I don't see gene in this mess uh, in this mix, so I'm not sure what that means yet
0: jeez, dub. Keep buzzing in my ear.
1: Heads up! All right, so there is there is an indication, there's a hint. There's a hint that Jean could be pregnant. Which may be why she's not in the front line right now. Um, this is, this could be... The danger room. It could also be the the resurgence of the of the uh, Sentinels. Of course, Rogue looking like Rogue. They haven't. I'm 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 encouraged that they haven't uh, changed her design that much for, from what it looks like here. Uh, RV Life says members get access to Todd's OnlyFans page. <laughs> Sorry. Well. It's a thought. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. All right, back to the trailer. Yeah, there's sentinels.
0: To me, my X-Men. Oh,
1: I okay. I mean, maybe. Now, when he says to me, my X-Men, if you look at the group here, we still don't have a Jean Grey. Jean is still not part of this team. Which is a choice. We'll see. Marvel Animation. All right, we we got a date. March 20th. March 20th. We will. Uh, so, so if you have not seen the original series, or if you're behind on the original series, <laughs> then uh, you have a you have a deadline now. Uh, Mattoween in the chat asking is to me my X Men their version of Avengers Assemble? Yes, that's something that Xavier would say in the original show uh, when he was pulling the team together uh, when things were were going sideways. So.
0: Magneto. The last will and testament of Charles Xavier.
1: Oh, Jean is pregnant. Look at that. There she is right there. She is very pregnant. All right. So Jean's going to be pregnant in this show. Whose baby do you think it is? It's probably Scott's, but still. Okay.
0: Everything he built now belongs to me
1: bum 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 all right so there it is the the marvel animation x-men trailer now um okay so let's address the morph question because there is an account online x-men updates which is uh, a fan run site let let's let's establish that first it is a fan run site it does not appear to be an officially sanctioned site it looks like it's just you know somebody has put this together and it's 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 not official licensed or or anything like that now there is, this, uh, there is this tweet that they posted, <clears throat> Morph's characterization in X-Men 97, quote, This is a lighter take on the character who is non-binary and has an interesting buddy relationship with Wolverine. The character's past with Mr. Sinister, the show's villains, could also come into play. Now it cites Empire Magazine. However, I have not been able to source this quote. I have not been able to confirm that this quote exists on Empire Magazine because I can't find it on their website. I can't find a link. and other people are asking, "Where is this? where Where is this article that's that's being quoted here?" So I don't know if this is actually official or not. It might it may very well be. But it's a fan-run account, and I can't find... I can't confirm that this quote is real, that it's in Empire Magazine. It may be in Entertainment Weekly. It could be in a different periodical. But as far as I can been able to verify, I haven't been able to verify. Morph's look... Is certainly different from how he looked in the original series. I mean, he's got the same outfit; he's got the jacket and the suit and all that. But his his morphology, you know, he's he's kind of a blank slate there. Doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be non binary, but it also doesn't necessarily mean that the show is going to be ter- terrible, 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 terrible. It depends on what they do with it. I mean. If they make a big deal out of it, yeah, that's a problem. But if if they go in and just, well, I can be anything I want, and just you know use his shape shifting abilities, and he can just do whatever he wants, it might not be that big a deal. I don't know. It in and of itself, it's not enough yet. I'll, I'll qualify that. It's not quite enough to turn me off to this. I'm cautiously, kind of, sort of, maybe optimistic. Remember what I said the other day. Marvel has an opportunity here to course correct. X-Men 97 is the first layer of this because the series hits on Disney+, Plus now we've got a date, March 20th, And then we have Deadpool 3, and Rob Liefeld has said, Deadpool 3 is going to save the MCU. There is a possibility, there's an opportunity there to hit a really big, shiny, candy, red reset button. Not saying that they will. Not saying they'll do it right. Not saying it will be successful. I'm just saying, there is an opportunity to course correct. And if this series is respectful of the continuity of the original series, if this series is done in a way that says, hey, we have a mass audience of a lot of different people who have a lot of different opinions about a lot of different things, and we're not going to preach at them and tell them what to think. We're just going to tell good stories. Because we're fans of the show. Because we're fans of That was And that was the thing. Bo DeMaio sat, uh, sat in, a, in an article in a, in a, in a uh, QA. and a and said one of the one of the critical pieces, one of the requirements for being on the writing staff is he had to be a fan of the original show. And I know other people have said, you know, he's come out and talked about, you know, black, queer, whatever, and malrepresentation, but his comments to that specific thing were taken out of context in an overall larger set of comments that he was making about his personal experience and then what the show was going to be. And he's got a very clear delineation between those two. And if you read that whole thing, if you go back to everything that he said, the fact that he's black, the fact that he's gay, does not necessarily mean that's coming into the show. Because he made a point of separating those two. This is me, and this is how I felt watching the show. And my experiences are going to inform that, but here's the show. The show's over here. And we have to be respectful of the original continuity. So everybody everybody is going to have their take, and I may irritate some people with my take, and that's fine. Michael says, I want Jean to be an alien or something. Scott never deserves to be happy. Scott being unhappy <laughs> leads to romantic drama. The Lost Loves of Cyclops. <sighs> that
2: sounds like a... The Lost Loves of a Cyclops sounds like something you would study in your literature class for, like, Roman mythology.
1: Kinda, Yeah
2: which would be hilarious. I suppose. I mean, you need something to get through that class. Yeah. Anyway,
1: but everything everything so far that I've seen, I mean, the the animation looks pretty good. It looks it looks like it's done in the 90s. I mean, they are emulating the style of the show. It's a little crisper. It's a little sharper, it's a little cleaner. And the music the music, the music is there. The theme there. is there. Yeah. We had the guitar. The theme is there. Na, 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 na,
2: Now we just need Whitney Houston singing to it. I'm not wrong about I that. I didn't say you were wrong.
1: I didn't say you were wrong. I didn't say you were wrong. For those of you who missed that, uh, Mrs. Boss noticed the other day, <coughs> Whitney Houston's I'm Your Baby Tonight has the same musical signature as the X Men theme. Da 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 da. That's the same. It's it's the same. Keep singing. No, that's all I'm gonna <laughs> do because that's the only part that matches. <laughs> that's the only part that matches. Whenever she the beginning of the chorus in "I'm Your Baby Tonight" is the X Men signature. I don't sing. All right. <clears throat> I mean, they've got to do something. Marvel has to do something. Because what they're doing right now ain't working. And Sony's not doing very much better. Madam Web, opening yesterday, has done $6 million at the box office. Now, these numbers over here on com. this is just domestic box office, and it's just... Tuesday night previews into Wednesday, so it's not a big thing. But $6 million so far at the box office for Madam Web. And we've got Dakota Johnson talking about whether or not she'd come back for a sequel. Now remember, Dakota Johnson has been all over the place talking about how messed up Hollywood is. It is an absolute garbage tier house of fire And she actually said, the executives in charge of the studios are scared to death to do anything creative. And she's saying this just ahead of the release of her movie. That tells me either she's a rebel, and you can't tell her what to do, or... The executives in charge of marketing, Madame Web, have just decided to write off the whole thing. She can say whatever she wants because they know it's not gonna not gonna be a success, regardless. But this is uh, this is Total Film Games. Radar. Wait, wait, Games Radar owns Total Film. Well, how did I not know that? Anyway, Madam Web's Dakota Johnson reveals whether or not she'd return for a sequel. This is Amy West writing yesterday. Madam Web star Dakota Johnson says she'd definitely return for a sequel if Sony and Marvel were to greenlight one. Ahead of the movie's release, Games Radar Plus and the Inside Total Film podcast sat down with the Fifty Shades of Grey actor. You know, one of these days she's going to be known for something else besides Fifty Shades of Grey. I might live that long. Talk about all things Madam Web. While she kept coy about where she'd like the franchise to go, if it goes on to become one, that is, she expressed enthusiasm over reprising the role of clairvoyant Cassie Webb. She says, if they want me to come back, then I definitely will. I have no idea what's in store. So, if there's a sequel, she's down for it. I don't know that there'll be a sequel. Because, you know, not gonna be not gonna be too much. <clears throat> uh Don Don Power Ranger Power in the chat says the nineteen ninety-two animated series introduced me to the X-Men and to composer Ron Wasserman, who later composed and performed Go Go Power Rangers. Um The late Fred Steiner's Park Avenue beat from the CBS series of Perry Mason was the basis for the former's theme tune. Cool. Road Vagabond Life says, Tell Mrs. Boss to compare Bob Marley's Buffalo Soldier to the Banana Splits theme song. That's
2: all you, dude. You love the Banana Splits.
1: Tra-la-la. La-la-la-la. Uh, Don says, uh, "Happy National Flag of Canada Day! Hope everyone's well. Happy 10th anniversary to Power Rangers Super Megaforce. By the way, our 15th anniversary is coming around March 23rd. Mark your calendar. Now, for those of you who are very excited about X Men '97 coming from Marvel Animation and everything else that's going to be on Disney Plus, make a note." Disney Plus readies its password crackdown era. Bum, bum, bum. This is The Hollywood Reporter. I've got to get my soundboard set up. So I can hit these buttons and fire off some sound effects. Alright, this is uh, Caitlin Houston writing The Hollywood Reporter. Today... Disney is the latest streaming giant to jump into a password-sharing crackdown with its efforts to make money from the effort set to begin in earnest this summer. The media giant has already updated its subscriber agreement for Disney+, Plus as well as Hulu, to ban account sharing for new subscribers starting January 25, 2024, and for existing subscribers starting on March 14th. On the company's February 7th earnings call, Disney CFO Hugh Johnston said that starting this summer, Disney Plus account holders will be presented with new capabilities that allow account sharers to start their own subscriptions. Later this calendar year, account holders can allow individuals outside of their household to access their account for an additional fee. Now, Netflix... Netflix did a thing where they they started cracking down on this stuff, and they ended up getting more subscribers. So but of course, you've got people who never use Netflix who have canceled it. And so I who knows it, it, it's 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 like everything else, it's a it's a mix because you're gonna get those people who will pay the extra fee to share their account you'll get people who will decide to go ahead and subscribe and get their own account, and you'll have people that will just flat-out cancel. It's like anything else. I'm curious to see what that does to the subscriber numbers, because Disney lost, what, 1.3 million subscribers to, to Disney Plus in the, in the fourth quarter? Something like that? So I don't know. We'll see. So that's coming. You can... Uh, you can plan plan accordingly <coughs> all right now I teased this earlier in uh, in over on Twixer I finally have figured out I finally figured it out Michael says I used to love x-men but stopped liking x-men before the series even started when they brought gene back in x-men 175 I was done are you talking about Phoenix the Phoenix saga So I have finally figured out why Pedro Pascal's casting bothers me. Now here's a story in variety. And remember I said Marvel's got a chance here to hit a reset button. The narrative is now going to be, well, you know, we could we could fix things, and here is this. The Fantastic Four could be the fresh start Marvel needs from an epic cast to a possible 1960s setting. All right. <clears throat> This tells me three things. One, it's probably going to be a period piece. Two, they're really wanting you to think that this casting is really, really, really fantastic. And three, the trades are recognizing that Marvel is in trouble and needs some kind of a fix. That, that I get just from the headline. Don't give him a kid. The what? Just don't give him a kid. Don't give him a kid. Well, I mean, Reed and Sue have kids. Yeah, but not in this one. Not yet. If it's set in the 60s, it's not going to be. So, all right. Christopher Nolan recently recently proclaimed that the decision to hire Robert Downey Jr. to play Tony Stark in Iron Man was one of the most consequential casting decisions that's ever been made in the history of the movie business. By the end of this decade, the same might be said for the four actors who were just cast as the titular superheroes in, the, in Marvel's The Fantastic Four. Pedro Pascal, Vanessa Kirby, Joseph Quinn, and even Moss Bachrach. Like Downey, all of these actors have had recent experiences with big-budget productions. Pascal with The Mandalorian and The Last of Us, Kirby with the two most recent Mission Impossible films, Quinn with Stranger Things, and Moss Bachrach with Andor. But also like Downey, none of them have headlined their own studio action blockbuster before signing up with Marvel. Downey, of course, proved to be much... uh, This new Fantastic Four, uh, looking, looking to be the new set, right? They finally step into the roles on the big screen they've been playing in comic books since Stanley and Jack Kirby first dreamed them up in 1961, launching the Marvel Universe as we know it today. Reed Richards... Uh, Pascal and Johnny Storm Quinn are like remixes of Stark and Cap. Reed's Mr. Fantastic as the stalwart, all-shucks genius. Johnny's Human Torch as the brash and rakish warrior. Okay, um right there that tells me these people don't know cuz Reed Richards Reed Richards is not an all-shucks genius. Uh no. <laughs> and And that gets to that gets to the epiphany that I had last night. And it didn't hurt, but I had an epiphany last night. well I'll tell you it here in a minute. Um, Sue's Invisible Woman grows into one of the most impressive suites of powers in the Marvel Canon. And that's something that's been discussed before, the fact that Sue Storm could very well be one of the most powerful and dangerous characters in the Marvel Universe, and nobody really has talked about it that much. Because, really, if you have the power to generate force fields, if you have the ability to create a bubble of energy anywhere you want to put it what's to stop you from creating that little bubble inside someone's brain and I do think I want to say that there was a there was a fantastic four story where she actually mentioned that she could do that and you're right yeah Uh, Michael, Ben's Ben's the fighter. Johnny is not a warrior. Johnny's Johnny's a teenager. He's 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 a he's a party hound. (sighs) Unlike Captain Marvel or Scarlet Witch, she's far more grounded with earthbound everyday concerns. And Ben Grimm is walking pathos. A scratch. Not until after he gets changed. A scrappy, good-natured man struck with the Thing's seemingly monstrous monstrous body of orange boulders. He's Hulk without the uncontrollable rage and Rocket without the antisocial misanthropy. Readers of Marvel Comics know these four characters have been integral to the ongoing Marvel Universe, often at its very center. Here we go. What is most tantalizing about Wednesday's announcement is the way Marvel went about it, with a playful illustration of the actors as their characters celebrating Valentine's Day. From the retro title treatment, to the mid-century modern costumes and furniture, to the fact that Ben appears to be reading an issue of Life magazine from December 1963, it seems pretty clear that the Fantastic Four will be set in the 1960s. More to the point that that suggests that the Fantastic Four will exist in a parallel universe separate from the core MCU. No, it doesn't. If there was a family of space-age superheroes who were contemporaries of Peggy Carter and Howard Stark, we probably would have heard about them by now. Instead, Marvel appears to be using this film to give itself a literal fresh start allowing audiences to walk into this movie without necessarily having to know anything about the 50-plus MCU titles that will precede it. Yes, that's true. Because if you're telling an origin story, and again, we're assuming that it's going to be an origin story because it's set in the 60s, you can tell this story, you can make this movie a standalone movie, And it doesn't have to connect to any other thing. You might can have, you know, Howard Stark could show up. Peggy Carter could show up. Just, you know, cameo. A throwaway. But there's nothing that says the, the Fantastic Four has to be connected to everything else. Not in their first movie. You do it like Captain America. Captain America was its own thing. Because it was a period piece, remember. So we have a template. We have a model to follow. Captain America was its own thing. And it didn't get connected to the MCU until he woke up out of the ice. At the end of the movie. And if you really wanted to... There's a montage right in the middle of Captain America where they're attacking all of these different Hydra bases. There's several years there that you could do additional Captain America World War II movies. I mean, you could. Not saying they will. Not saying it's a good idea. I'm saying you could. So they do the first... Fantastic Four movie. They set it in the sixties. They do the origin story. Cosmic rays. Everybody's got powers. Horrible, horrible, horrible things. You could you could lean into the body horror. You could lean into all sorts of different ways to approach those powers. <coughs> and then you can connect it however you want. In the MCU going forward with other stuff, you know how are they get trapped in the micro universe or or the the another dimension or whatnot. But the fact that it's set in the '60s does not necessarily mean that it's an alternate timeline or an alternate universe. All it means is that it's set in the '60s, and we don't have any idea why they haven't been mentioned until now. It could very well be that they they I mean. In the original, sh- the original story, they stole the ship. So the fact that we haven't heard anything about the Fantastic Four could mean, if I'm a writer, I can, I can extrapolate that, one, the government doesn't want you to know that they stole a spaceship, so we're going to cover it up. Two, the fact that they disappeared means that there's never been media coverage of any of their accomplishments because they haven't been here. Maybe you get a where are they now type of thing, but they're gone. And all the government has to do <coughs> once they disappear, all the government has to do is sit there and say, they're dead. So sad. Moving on. And nothing, nothing else about it. So that's how you could approach it. But that wouldn't be until after the first movie, anyway. Well, I've never heard of you guys. Well, that's because they covered up the pro- they they covered up the program. They 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 memory hold it. They classified it so deep and dark and put it in a hole that nobody knew. But nobody knew this program was. And you could get Reed Richards reacting to the fact that all of his accomplishments have been erased, and he's now faced an—he's now facing an existential threat. To his person, his intellect. What do you mean? Nobody's heard of my. Nobody's heard of me. What do you mean? Nobody's. No, what about all of my inventions? What did you do? You just buried them. I had all this. All this stuff that could have helped humanity. And then that could lead to Reed Richards being a villain. I, I don't know. <laughs> and it's and it's interesting too that people are talking about you know, with Madam Webb being worse than Morbius. And you have Morbius. Uh Darren Mooney has has posted a a screen grab of somebody, I'm not sure exactly who, saying Please understand that Madam Webb and Morbius type of movies were all we were getting before the MCU. Like, it was that caliber of bad. So whenever people are like, insert the MCU movie here is bad, I'm like, what? Well, the MCU has been a blessing to comic book media. There's so much wrong with this statement. and And Darren rightly points out. He says before the MCU we had Batman 66, Superman, Batman, Batman Returns, Spider Man, Spider-Man 2, Batman Begins, X-Men, X-Men 2, Superman 2, The Richard Donner Cut, Sin City, a Hulk movie. Now and 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 then you had three blade films. You had you had some good superhero movies before the Marvel Cinematic universe. And there will be good ...superhero movies... ...after the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I still maintain... ...that Steel... ...is... ...better than it should be... ...given the budget they had. Because when Steel came out... (coughs) ...this is the one with Shaquille O'Neal... ...playing John Henry Irons... ...when Steel came out... ...they were given a mandate that they could not connect it to Superman. Now, he's got the Superman shield as a tattoo on his arm, but that's the only Superman reference at all. This thing had to be its own standalone thing because shared universes weren't a thing back then. But can you imagine if they had let... If they had let Kenneth Johnson connect steel to the Christopher Reeve Superman movies... That would have been fun. But they didn't. Now, I'm going to tell you, I have figured out uh, my my epiphany. (coughs) Here's my epiphany. I figured out why Pedro Pascal's casting as Reed Richards bothers me so much. It's not because he's not white. I mean, he's from Chile. He's got an accent, so everybody assumes he's Hispanic. Pedro Pascal. He's from Chile. Whatever. That doesn't bother me. I mean, yeah, Reed Richards is from New York or, or Massachusetts or wherever it is from up, upstate, you know, northeast somewhere, so he should sound like he's from northeast. He should sound like he's from New England, New York, somewhere around there. Yankee. But here's what bothers me. Here's, here's why Pedro Pascal is a terrible fit for Reed Richards. Because if you go back and you look at the original Jack Kirby design, you look at the way Reed Richards is depicted in the comic books, his face is an inverted pyramid. No 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 wait 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 it's a design thing his face he's he's got a squared off face it's straight lines and angles because he's the brain right he's the smart guy he's the sharp guy and so he's all sharp angles his face is his, his face is wider at the top narrows down to the to the to the chin because he's a big brain right he's smart guy and he he doesn't have any any fat. You know, he's skinny. I if 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 the if the buccal fat remover stuff was a thing in the sixties, Reed Richards would have I mean he, he's he doesn't have any excess in his face. Whereas Pedro Pascal's face is round. And baby fat. He's got. He, he's got. He's got. I don't want to say he's got a bloated face. But his face is round. He's the wrong shape. For Reed Richards. Aside from the fact. He's got that little pretend mustache thing. He's got all the time. I mean. It, okay. But he doesn't look like Reed Richards. At all. He's. He he's too soft. He looks too soft to play Reed Richards. He needs to lose about 20 pounds and get oh, his dad bod. Well, no, it, it, I mean, he, yeah, he's dad bod now. And that needs to go away because Reed Richards is not and especially even after you know, when, after he's got his powers. He's elastic. He's tiny. You look at all of the elastic characters. Plastic Man, Elongated Man, Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. All of them are tall, skinny dudes. Pedro Pascal is not a tall, skinny dude. He's short, and he's, and he's, he's, he's cuddly. That's not what you get with Reed Richards. Reed Richards is not cuddly. That's why I think Pedro Pascal is the wrong is the wrong choice. Aside from the fact that Pedro Pascal is the is the flavor of the month actor right now, let's put Pedro Pascal in everything. You know they did it with Chris Pratt, they did it with Benedict Cumberbatch, they did it with uh, uh, um, um, who else? I mean they do it all the time. Jennifer Lawrence is a thing. Scarlett Johansson is a thing. I, somebody shows up, they're in everything. <coughs> Bradley Cooper. Everything is going to be, you know, every actor is going to have their moment. This is Pedro Pascal's moment. He gets his 15 minutes of fame. He gets cast in everything, whether he fits or not. Because he's a bankable actor. He's not a star. They really want him to be a star, but he's not a star. He's not star quality. He's a a B-level actor. and the fact that he's soft-looking, kind of puffy, kind of squishy, reinforces this rumor that this movie is going to be all about Sue. Because Vanessa Kirby, out of the four actors that they've announced, Vanessa Kirby is the, the one that's got the most recognition she's got the most star power out of all all four of these so I don't think that it's any any happenstance that everybody it seems like everybody was cast around her and I want to bet you that we'll probably get some media media coverage when the movie finally does come out and we get some stuff, you know, behind the scenes stories and the tales of making the movie and all of this. Eventually, we'll probably get that story that says that the cast was built around Vanessa Kirby, not Pedro Pascal. Because Pedro Pascal is not a lead character; he's not a lead actor. I don't you know. In The Mandalorian, he's a voice. He's a voice actor. He's a supporting actor for everybody else that's, that's around him. I haven't watched him in The Last of Us. He was okay in Wonder Woman 84. I just... I don't know. But that's what he... But I had my other thought. Yeah, he's the new Antonio Banderas. Well, he's not as good looking as Antonio Banderas, certainly. But yeah, it's the same... It's that that thing... Here, here's this actor, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe was in everything for a while. You know, the, the, Edward Norton, Mark Ruffalo. It, it just pick somebody, and the if they're if they're any any inkling of talent or popularity, that that's the other thing. If they're very popular, they get cast in everything. Now, I had another thought. You know who would have been a good Reed Richards back in the day? And he's too old now, which is a shame. But you know who would have, have been a good Reed Richards? Mrs. Boss, do you know who I'm thinking about? Kyle McLaughlin. Oh. Kyle McLaughlin looks like Reed Richards. If you had given Kyle McLaughlin the Fantastic Four and put him opposite Kim Basinger as Sue Storm, You're printing money. Kyle McLaughlin looks like Reed Richards. It's because he's got the... His face is the right shape. And I know that sounds really silly and trivial. Kyle McLaughlin would have been a really good Reed Richards, I think. So who now... Looks like that. I'm racking my brain, and I'm thinking I don't know anybody that looks like that nowadays. Who do you have out there that looks like a modern, a modern Kyle McLaughlin? we were talking about this the other day. People are saying, "Yeah, you we know, maybe Brandon Ralph, maybe," but. Kyle MacLachlan would have been a great Reed Richards, I think. Yeah, yeah, a young young Kyle, not a Desperate Housewives Kyle. Yes. Yeah, you get him right after after Dune and Twin Peaks when he's at the height of his popularity. You make Kyle MacLachlan Reed Richards, you've got six movies out of that deal. And then you could bring him back when he's older, after they've disappeared. I mean, you could do that. Oh, the things what could have been, the things what could have been. Here's another. Here's another thing. Uh, Disney, possible Disney thing. Uh, Jody Benson teases a new. Uh, a new run as Ariel. This is a site called Chip and Company breaking this story. Jody Benson teases a possible return as Ariel in a new surprise project. Uh, this was posted yesterday on the 14th. Uh, Disney legend Jody Benson, the celebrated singer and actress, impacted generations with her unforgettable performance as Princess Ariel in Disney's cherished classic, The Little Mermaid captivating voice breathed life into the beloved mermaid princess leaving an enduring impression on the realm of animation today followers of voice actress Jodie Benson are thrilled to uncover her hints about an upcoming surprise project on her social media uh, amidst rampant speculation many infer from the clip art she shared that this enigmatic endeavor might signal a joyful return with the role that catapulted her to fame princess Ariel so here's here's uh here's a picture of her in the studio uh she's recording a new project and she's got the little clip art there of Ariel and sebastian uh they're uh covering up the screen and then there's another there's another piece here oh uh, where is it another well I didn't see it. another another photograph some somewhere where she showed a uh, a screen show that that indicated she's playing Ariel again in some project. So Jodie Benson might be coming back as the Little Mermaid for another project. And and see, this is Disney maybe trying to fix things. And Nelson Peltz is probably right. They are throwing spaghetti up against the wall to see what sticks. Moana 2 becoming a movie instead of a instead of a Disney Plus thing because they got to get something in theaters that sells tickets. If they're bringing Jodie Benson back as the little mermaid for a project of something, now it could be uh, it could be the Fortnite thing. It could be a Fortnite thing because, you know, Disney is going to be investing a billion and a half dollars, I don't know where they're going to get it, into Epic Games for a Fortnite deal. So maybe Jody Benson is recording some new material as Ariel for Fortnite. I don't know how Fortnite works. Maybe Maybe none of the characters ever talk. I don't know. It could be that. It could be a, a, new, uh, a new direct-to-DVD production. It could be something for Disney+. Plus. It could be a special little thing. She could be recording something for the parks. Who knows? But the fact that they're bringing Jodie Benson back as Ariel and not using Halle Bailey for whatever it is says either it's an animated thing or it's a game thing And it's the original Ariel Little Mermaid and not Black Ariel Little Mermaid. Take that as a positive. Is that a win? Don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. We'll see. Other headline here. This this broke uh, yesterday, and I didn't get to it. The Bewitched series reboot in the works from Judalina Nera under an overall deal with Sony Pictures. So it looks like we're going to get another Bewitched. <sighs> Yay. <laughs> I wonder if they'll have two Darrens. I don't know. All right. <clears throat> we are going to take a break. When we get back, author M.K. Lobb will join us, and we're going to be talking about her new book, Disciples of Chaos. So, stand by here for a moment. Let me do this and this and hit this button and hit that button. And we will be right back. Stand by, everybody remember no matter where you go there you are this is sci-fi for me radio Hi, everyone. Jason Hutt here, taking a moment to say thank you for listening to this program on the podcast player of your choice and to invite you to watch the show as it unfolds live on our various video platforms. Not only will you get to see the visual references we have, but you also have a chance to interact with us through the chat widget and during the open line hour when you can call in and be part of the show. Join us live from the bunker Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern U.S. only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. All right, we are back live from the bunker here in the second hour, and it is time to have a conversation about this book right here. It's called Disciples of Chaos. I have my copy. (laughs) And joining us to discuss said book, M.K. Love. She is the author. This is book two in a duology. And I had to explain uh, to somebody yesterday what a duology is. Think trilogy. Trilogy is three. (laughs) Duology is two. So this is the second book. The first book, Seven Faceless Saints. So, let's talk a little bit. MK, welcome to the program. Glad to have you.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's so, funny that you say that you had to explain what a duology <laughs> is to people, because I find myself having to do that a lot, too. <laughs> well,
1: it's it's not something that you normally uh, look at in terms of structure, because you know, for yeah. for all of the great things that Star Wars has given us, it's also delivered... The trilogy. Everything's got to be a trilogy. Everything's a, a, you know, and then it becomes a series of things. And with yeah, books, yeah. you've got you know franchises. I mean, you you look at things like uh, like David Weber's Honor Harrington books, you know, Robert Jordan's books, uh, you know, all all of these different series, Dragon Riders of Pern. There's mm-hmm. there's never just one and done anymore. It feels like. And this, this is the sequel to this, to the, to, to seven fearless. uh, I I keep saying fearless, seven faceless saints.
3: It's such a tongue twister.
1: (laughs) Let me ask you if I, if I'm looking at this because I got this copy, I got the review copy and I went back and I looked at all of the pile that we have here of all of the different review copies of lots of different things. And I don't see the first book in our, in our set. So I'm sitting here thinking, okay, How much am I going to lose if I pick up this book without having read the first one? So before Um, before that, let me ask you what this one is about. Let's start there.
3: Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so Disciples of Chaos is more about um, these two people, Roz and Damien. It's from both of their perspectives. Um, Roz is a disciple, which means she has magic in this world, and Damien is not, but he works for kind of the magical government. So he's part of the system, but he doesn't actually have the magic that is important in the world that they're in. Um, And they used to be kind of friends slash lovers when they were younger, um, and they moved apart when Damien went off to war, and then they come back together in the first book. Um, So what they're doing in the first book is trying to solve a mystery. Uh, It's a murder mystery. But in book two, they are trying to figure out how to rescue their friends who have been shipped off to war, which means they have to go to the North, which is kind of enemy territory um, and figure out it's basically a quest plot line. They have to rescue their friends from the North. Um, And as they're doing that, Damien, the one point of view character is kind of having sort of an unhinged mental breakdown more or less that seems to be magic related. Um, And you kind of find out more about that on the way. Um, so it's ultimately a story of rescuing your friends and taking down a corrupt system, which we always love in sci-fi and fantasy. <laughs> right.
1: Okay, so so given that, uh, how much does the first book inform the second book? Because it sounds like they're relatively standalone-ish. Yeah,
3: in terms, in terms of plot, I would say the plots can stand alone more or less, um, but you would need to read the first book if you want to know— the characters' backstories and how their relationship progressed, and if you want to kind of understand the magic system and the political system, I guess. Um, but in terms of just understanding the plot, it they are very self-contained, more or less.
1: So a lot, of, you know, a lot of these series, there's you know, there's these books that you can read them in any particular order, any sequence. You pick one up, and then you can fill in the fill in the blanks for other books. Uh, did did you when you're writing this, did it ever cross your mind this could be the book that people pick up first that's got your name on it?
3: Uh, Yeah, I think when you're writing a sequel to any book, you kind of have to factor that in because it does so happen that people are going to go into a store and pick up a book because they like the cover and they don't necessarily know that there's supposed to be a different one that comes first, right? Um, and I think part of the problem now, at least when I notice it in YA fantasy and sci-fi, which is most of what I write and read, it doesn't always say that it's like book two or book three in a series. So sometimes you kind of have to figure that out after the fact. Um, So I was cognizant of that when I was writing it. I was trying to sort of, in writing the beginning, I want to hint at the fact that it is a follow-up to a first book, um, but I also don't want to info dump a whole bunch of stuff to try and explain what happened in the first book. Um, so you really have to try and strike a balance in doing that, I found. Um, but you can read them separately if you want. I don't recommend it.
1: No. <laughs> now, Seven Faceless Saints is your debut novel.
3: Yes, it was.
1: And you you have the appearance of being relatively young. How, well, thank how you. does <laughs> how does it feel how does it feel being a published author? I mean, this is this is a thing now, because a lot of times I'm I'm talking with people. And they've, they've published seven, eight, ten, a dozen, you know, a hundred books. It's, it's mm-hmm. not very often I get to talk to somebody who's at the very beginning. So how does it feel now that you've got a couple of books under your belt?
3: I mean, it's wonderful. I feel much better about the second book coming out than I did about the first now that I kind of know what to expect. Yeah. Um, it is it is very scary at the beginning when you are putting out your first novel and trying to navigate like, the publicity side of things, and you're getting feedback for the first time from people that you don't know. Um, and so it was obviously very exciting. I love being a published author. I'm so happy that I've done it. But it is nice to go into sort of a follow-up novel where you have an established fan base of people who liked the first book or just like your writing in general, um, and you know what to expect. And I think it's nice, at least in my case, to go into a follow-up directly from your first book instead of a whole separate novel, because you can kind of, it's kind of more relaxing to promote, like, obviously I'm trying to draw in new readers, but it's also nice to promote inside of a world that you've already created and certain people are already familiar with. Right. Um, So.
1: Well, and I would imagine that that familiarity works to your advantage because you're, you are in terms of the kinds of stories that you're telling, you're not reinventing the wheel with the world building. You're adding to it and you've got your three ring binder and here's all of the stuff that we've already come up with in terms of the magic and the, and the, the rules of the road here, as it were. So you could just kind of stay inside that sandbox and you just add to it. So when you're doing all of the world building for this thing, was Was this planned as book one and Book two, or did you go into it with your your first book is is what you've got in your head? and then, oh, i've I've got enough ideas. I could do a second one. it was how how did that sequence work?
3: It's funny that you ask that actually, because it was sort of unconventional, I guess, in my experience. Um, when I initially started writing Seven Faceless Saints in my head, there was going to be a follow-up book. Um, But then when I sold it to my publisher, it happened in a one book deal. So I was forced to kind of recontextualize the story inside my world and try to sort of streamline what was going to happen and move away from my original idea. But then as I got to the end of edits for the first book, I think I was on round three of edits or something like that. um, I actually had a conversation with my editor and she essentially said, Like, if you want to write a follow-up book, I'll take it back to my head editor and see if we can get you a deal for the second novel, which is actually what ended up happening, Um, which is wonderful, but it was very odd timing because I had already sort of set up book one to be self-contained, and so now I've got this book two deal that I can go into, so I have to kind of strike a balance between figuring out how to lead into that second book, um, but also you know, deal with the fact that I have written book one as if that's the end of the story, more or less. (laughs) Um, But I think it was very useful that I was able to go into book two, because there are a lot of things that were kind of less explained than I would have wanted them to be in the first novel. Um, Like there's a lot about the world outside of the main city, um, which is where the whole first book takes place that I wanted to look at um, inside characters that I just couldn't quite get to as much as I wanted to in the first novel. Um, so being able to expand on that in the second book was really good, Um, but like I said, the first book, if you don't read the epilogue, it does stand alone pretty well, Um, but for people who want to know more about the world and the characters and sort of the things that weren't as explained as much in the first novel, I'm really happy that I was able to move it into the sequel like I had originally wanted to.
1: Well, and it sounds like the second book doesn't doesn't depend on threads that you set up in the first book that didn't get resolved either so it it might make it a little bit easier for people to just pick up this one and say okay i'm going to read this and then i can go back and read the first one afterwards
3: yeah there's one thread um, that has to do with one of the characters that does sort of move into book two um, which is what i had originally intended, and i was able to go back and sort of build on that at the end of edits Um, But like I said, the first book was very much a murder mystery story. And so you kind of move along the murder mystery plot points. And at the end, you find out who your killer is and stuff like that. Right. So from that perspective, it is very self-contained. But there are there are elements when it comes to like the world and the world building and the characters that very much needed a second novel to expand on that.
1: So if you're writing a murder mystery, what was the impetus in putting it in a fantasy setting?
3: Honestly, I just really wanted to write a murder mystery, and (laughs) I'm not the kind of person who likes to work within a contemporary setting. I'm very much a fantasy reader and a fantasy author, Um, and so when I'm writing, I'm always starting with sort of imagining a world, and I generally come up with my world based on some sort of historical inspiration. So I already had this world in mind that I wanted to work with. um, And I'm the kind of author who kind of builds my scene before I actually decide what the plot is going to be. So I had this scene that I was already planning to work within. um, And I had always, like I said, I'd always wanted to write a murder mystery. And so I essentially combined my uh, existing world idea with this murder idea. um, And it was kind of born from that
1: so the research that you would need to do for a murder mystery and the research that you would do for fantasy world building not necessarily in the same wheelhouse what right. <laughs> what kind of what kind of of work did you have to do to to marry those two because you know a murder mystery. You're going to be talking to people. You you know you're going to be doing research on other murder mysteries. You read other mur- murder mysteries. You could maybe talk to private investigators or police officers, law enforcement, whatnot, and do your 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 research that way. And mm-hmm. then you have your fantasy setting. What what was what was it that you had to do in order to set all this stuff up so it would work?
3: I think the nice part about always setting your book in a fantasy setting is that you're not necessarily reliant on, say, American law or Canadian law or wherever you're working within, right? Um, So I get to make up my own laws for this world that I've (laughs) created, and I can have the characters follow those. Um, And in this instance, one of the characters actually worked within the political system. So it's definitely a lot easier, at least from my perspective, to be able to write a story like that if you're working within a fantasy world because you're not needing to talk to you know lawyers or cops or anything like that to try and understand the intricacies of the law Um, but I think what I most had to do in order to set up the murder mystery aspect was just read other mystery books Um, and for me I really like YA murder mysteries Um, I like the the very fast-paced and I like when it's younger people that are solving them um, so I was reading some of those and just taking notes in terms of like where the certain plot points were that they were working with and um, mm-hmm. when the twist happens and stuff like that. Um, but when it comes to the world building, my world was actually based on Florence, Italy, um, and it's not directly Florence, but it's very much based on. So in medieval, sort of the medieval into Renaissance era in Italy in Florence, there were these guilds that ran the city. Um, And they had these major guilds and these minor guilds, and I based it on the seven major guilds. Um, And so at the time, it would have been like wool workers and bankers and stuff like that, like trades within the city or skills that people had. Um, And so what I did was I took that concept of these guilds, and instead of having them have a practical skill, I made it a magic skill. So now i have these seven magical guilds and then connected each guild to a saint that is said to like have blessed the group of people that are within that guild um and so where that ties into the murder mystery is that at the start of the story you essentially have a bunch of people who are unblessed which means they're not magical they're not in one of these important guilds and they have been sort of killed off but nobody really cares because they're not considered important in this world Um, But then when somebody dies who is important and is part of one of these magical guilds, that's where the inception of the story kind of comes from. I suppose that people are like, oh, okay, this is an important person that's dying who possesses this magic. And now we're going to move into the murder mystery solving aspect of the story.
1: It's it's not important until the politician's grandmother gets affected, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah. So how, how how are you setting up the rules for your magic because in uh, a lot of times when we're dealing with that kind of thing, you know, magic could be anything. And and you you look at, you know, one man's science could be considered another man's magic type of thing. How much structure did you feel you had to 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 give the magic aspects of this?
3: Um, I think one of the interesting things about writing it as a mystery is that I had these seven types of magic, more or less, but not necessarily all of them needed to come into play at the same time Mm -hmm. in this book. Um, So, for example, every saint, like I said, has a different sort of magical power that is important in the world um, and important to how, I guess, their economy functions. Um, And so, for example, one of the main characters is a disciple of patience, and so their ability is for metal. And so they're working to build things like weapons and stuff that, and that's why these fields are so important to this world because they're contributing to the economy in a way that people who don't have magic can't because they just don't have the ability to work with things in a way that's as efficient as those with the magic capacity or whatever can. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had people that can work with the physical. So I had stone, metal, um, and then I think I had chemicals as one as well. It's been many years since I wrote this at this point. <laughs> um, but then I also had a group of magic that works with the non-physical. So there's people who work with um, the body and people who work with the mind. And that's what the disciples of chaos were said to do. They they work within the realm of the mind and can make people see things that aren't really happening. Mm. Um, and they are the group that are kind of... They've been pulled down from society, more or less. They're thought to not actually exist anymore. They're the fallen saints of the story. Um, and so that's where book two comes from, is these disciples of chaos that everyone is scared of and pretends don't exist anymore. Um, and they have this power over over what people perceive, and that's very scary to everybody in the world as a concept. Um,
1: yeah. There are, uh, there are a lot of historical eras, civilizations that have a religious component to the leadership the government um Mm -hmm. so i'm hearing i'm you know seven faceless saints i'm hearing you know gods and and patron saints and and that sort of thing with the guilds what kind of religious layers are are woven into this are you are you getting into any aspects of religion as part of the the way the society works
3: i mean because it's based on these florentian guilds there is sort of i would say like a veiled catholicism in a sense um it's not based on catholicism by any means but just the idea of the saints and the way that they interact with the government and the guilds um it's very similar to how the society that I was reading about worked at the time Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of like, these people are important to our society because they're important to the saints or the gods. Right. Um, And so the way that I set up the system of governance is that there are people who represent each guild. Um, And so they take somebody who has this magic ability and is a member of the guild And one person from each guild goes into what's called the palazzo in the book. And they, together, the seven of them represent their guilds and therefore represent the system as a whole. Um, And that is how it worked, essentially, in Florence at the time. They were representing their guild and therefore their people. And that's why they were a bunch of unfavored or people without the certain skills that weren't represented. Um, But in this case, it was very much representing their religious ideals it wasn't so much their people that they were trying to give a voice to it's very much a concept of like this is what i believe and i'm blessed because the saints have chosen me to take this place in the in the system of governance right um and so it's very much based on what certain people believe is correct under a religious system um and not so much what people actually need to survive in their city which i think is a very delicate balance that a lot of historical societies were not too great at addressing
1: yeah <laughs> well and how much of your own life experiences i mean i make i make the comment that you're young you're young but you know you've you've probably had some things uh, happen in your life how much how much are you able or willing to bring into the mix here in terms of how you tell a story, what kind of characters you have? How how much of that is you as opposed to just objective research going into this?
3: In terms of the religious aspect or just
1: overall? Just, well, overall, I mean, the religion factors into it, sure, but overall, yeah. Um, How how much is M.K. Lobb in this story?
3: You know, I always say when I'm talking to people about these books that it is two point of view characters. And I say that one of them, Roz, is really my angry feelings towards the system (laughs) and towards the uh, general organized religion. Um, And then Damien is kind of my my sadness or my regret in a way um, because they are very different characters. Roz is extremely angry and Damien is, he he feels a lot of guilt and a lot of pressure to be a certain way. Um, And I think both of those draw from certain parts of myself, but then take it to a whole other level because obviously I'm not as angry as Roz is. I'm not trying to pull down an entire system of governance. (laughs) Um, And so I think in that aspect, they like all of my characters draw from my feelings in some capacity. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of extrapolated in a sense, I guess. Like I, I take a feeling that I have, and I really make that their core characterization. Um, and when it comes to the world building and all of that kind of stuff, I, I'm a politics major. I graduated with a degree in policy, so I do have a lot of thoughts about that as well, <laughs> uh, which I think comes across very clearly, especially in book two, yeah. um, just in terms of how certain people become sort of unimportant within a system. They aren't given a voice in a system. And so, I think once I've combined that political aspect of the less fortunate with the religious oppressed, I guess. Um, I have a lot of strong feelings about how those people should be able to respond to those kind of situations.
1: So so you being from Canada, this this isn't uh this isn't a, a a veiled critique of of Mr. Trudeau, is it?
3: <laughs> it is not. <laughs> No, not at all.
1: Um, well, and no, I make, the, and I I make think... the joke, but it's, you know, there's a lot of a lot of this has been going around. This has been discussed for a, for a number of years now. Um, the 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 question of balance between telling a story that entertains the general public. And writing some kind of message fiction lecture screed sermon that I'm going to try to tell you how you should think. Yeah. At any point in all of this, did you find yourself having to pull back from that line and say, OK, this is too much. I got to I got to ease off here.
3: Um, in terms of the political aspect, I draw a lot more from historical politics and political theory than I do the current state of policy, um, and so I don't find that I'm, like, inadvertently writing in any kind of veiled critique of the current government that I'm living <laughs> under anything like that. It's very much based on how I would have imagined the Florentian government, for example, at the time to be, or the oppressive nature of the Catholic Church at the time. Um, and so I didn't find myself worried about, I guess, over communicating that aspect. Um, I do take a very, some people would say strong stance against like the dangers of organized religion and how it can affect certain people in ways that lead it to affect the entire, I guess, world that they're living in. Um, and I think Like, I have one character in the story. There's one point of view character who's very anti-organized religion and anti the system that runs the story. Um, And then the other one is very much in that system, and he's entrenched in it, and he wants to believe it, um, and he feels lesser because he doesn't feel like he's been blessed by these saints in the story. Um, And so a big part for me of writing his character arc is kind of trying to draw him out of that, feeling that he needs to be and believe in something that other people are telling him he needs to be and believe in um and i know a lot of people think that i come off a little heavy handed when it comes to those sort of situations um and that is fair i definitely do i do have a strong opinion where the dangers of organized religion are cons- are concerned um obviously not everything about it is negative i wouldn't say that about anything in the right. book or anything in life. Um, But I do, I do take a strong stance there. And I think that's a stance that I take in a lot of my books, even the ones that aren't published yet. Um, Just in terms of looking at our own biases and beliefs and kind of unraveling that and trying to approach it from a way that isn't impacted by what you've been told to think by other people, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, So that's, that's a very, prominent theme in everything that I write. And some people will see it and will take something from it that is positive. And some people will see it and they will, they might see it as heavy handed and a little bit negative. And, you know, that's something that I've accepted.
1: <laughs> now are, are these, are these strong feelings? What drove you to start wanting to write in the first place? how did you, how did you, how did you begin? What's your, what's your origin story there?
3: Uh. No, this is not what inspired me to write, honestly. This is my, I would say my eighth book. Seven Facial Saints was the eighth book that I've written. I wrote a lot before that, that I tried to query and get published. And every time I couldn't get an agent that I thought would be able to help me get published, I kind of moved on and started writing something else. Um, and so I think actually the first thing that I wrote was Warrior Cats fan fiction, which for people who don't know, that is a series for... I think it's a middle grade series about cats who are fighting in these clans against each other. Um, and I, I didn't even know what fan fiction was at the time, but I read those books. I loved them. And I started writing stories about what these cats might be doing outside of the actual series that I had just read. And so I was inadvertently writing, writing cat fan fiction. Um, and that kind of launched me into writing stories of my own.
1: Yeah. So how long did it take you to get this this first book, uh, Seven Faceless Saints, uh, published and, and out on shelves?
3: Um, do you mean like just that book or like when I started trying to get published in general?
1: Well, you started writing this story. You said you queried in, and you were going through uh, s- several different editing phases when they finally decided we're going to do a second book. Yeah. I it seems to me that the move to a second book would take less time because now you're established with the first book. How long did it take you to find an agent, a publisher for that first book from the time you wrote it to when it gets on the shelf? How how much effort did that take?
3: Um so for Seven Faceless Saints actually it happened very quickly. Um prior to that I was spending years trying to get other books published and they just weren't working, I guess. I couldn't find an agent and then I would start again and I would query for months and months and months. Um, But once I moved on to writing Seven Faceless Saints, I wrote it pretty quickly. I think I wrote it in three or four months. Um, And by that point, I had queried so many times that I actually had agents who remembered me from my prior books that I'd sent them, which is what happened with my agent, actually. Um, When I sent her this book, she remembered me from the one that I had sent previously because I'd only queried it, I want to say five months prior. um, And she offered me feedback in terms of doing like a revise and resubmit. So essentially, for people who don't know, that's her saying, if you make these changes, I will reconsider your work and reconsider taking you on as a client. Um, And so I decided I didn't want to do that again. I was already starting to write Seven Faceless Saints by that time. So instead of revising the previous book, I sent her Saints um, and like I said, she did remember me and she liked my previous book enough that she requested a full right away. Um, and I sent that on to her and 11 days later, she asked for a call and offered me representation. And that was the, either the third or the fourth book that I'd sent this particular agent. So it wasn't like it was, it happened very quickly, but also it took a very long time at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and from there, we went on submission, and yeah, I think it would have been about a year from when I signed with my agent to when my book was announced.
1: And in that time, as you're as you're waiting for this, when you get this manuscript and it's all done and then finished, how much are you relying on feedback from not only the agents and, and editors, but are, are you using beta readers? Are you handing it to mom? Say, mom, read this. Tell me what you think. <laughs> Type, type. I'm not
3: <laughs> handing it to my mom. Um, my books tend to be a little too dark for her tastes. Um, but definitely when I was in the querying phase, I used beta readers and critique partners a lot. Um, and I still do use critique partners. Like I'll send my my outline or my first chapters on to a friend and get feedback from them for sure. Um, but I don't use them nearly as much as I did before I had an agent because now that I do have an agent, I will send her basically, my very short pitch and say, hey, do you think this is marketable? Do you like this idea? And then she'll say either yes, go ahead and write it or no. Um, If she says yes, then usually I will send her a full outline or at least the first couple chapters, because sometimes I prefer to actually get into the writing before I try to put together a whole outline just to see if I'm actually able to be grabbed by the voice and I actually want to finish writing it. Um, And so I rely a lot more on my agent now than I would have previously. Um, so I don't have as much need for beta readers. I'm not looking for... So I used to have like five or six beta readers come mm-hmm. back and give me feedback, right? And I'd try to put that together and see what feedback was overlapping. And now I tend to just rely on a couple trusted author friends and my agent, and then of course my editor once we get to that
1: point. So the the fact that you've got um, a, a, a head for what's marketable and what's not, and your editor comes back and says, no, I don't think I can sell this one. And you're you're just willing to just toss it. It's It sounds to me like you're one of those writers who has a little bit easier time killing your darlings. <laughs>
3: um, I would say that I probably do, mostly because, like, I'm very, obviously I want to write the things that I want to write, but. Um, But I'm very cognizant of the market and I don't want to put a whole bunch of work into writing something that I know is not going to sell. So I'll come up with an idea that I like. And I've been very lucky in that the ideas that I've come up with so far, my agent has said, yeah, that's good. We'll we'll try and sell that. Um, But if I was going to come up with an idea that she didn't like, I would just pitch it as, say, a couple paragraphs before I would go in and try and start characterization or coming up with a setting and stuff like that because I think once I do that and once I get attached to this idea of how the characters are going to be and I start plotting that's where it becomes very difficult to pivot away from that Um, and so it is very handy to have an agent who does understand the market and where things are going and they can kind of pull me back before I get too entrenched in an idea (laughs) Um, but I am somebody who is good at killing my darlings. I will say, um, I don't love it. I don't think anybody loves it. Um, but for example, if I send my editor new chapters to a book or something, and she says, I don't like this and this and this, I think you should change it. I'm not, I'm not going to react automatically as being, I guess, sad and annoyed that I have to change it. I might feel sad and annoyed, but I'm also very aware that she knows more than me usually in terms of what's going to work and, when it comes to story structure and then appealing to people. Um, And I think that's a hard balance to strike because you do want to stay true to your vision and what you like to write, but you also want to make sure that what you're putting so much work into is going to be received as best as it possibly can. Um, And so I just try to keep a very, I guess, logical mindset when it comes to that and not let myself get too emotional about having to change things that I like enjoy about my story.
1: Now, how many of the ideas that get killed end up getting recycled into other things? Like maybe they become a subplot or a little thread, or here's some supporting characters that maybe are, are pieces that didn't turn into a story, but this is something that I can still use over here. Do you, I? Do you? I'm assuming that you do that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And it really depends on the book. Um, for example, there were things that I had to cut from seven faceless saints that I ended up reusing in disciples of chaos, which was great. Um, there's a specific setting that I really liked in the first book that didn't end up working and I was able to reuse it in book two. Um, and the same goes for certain side characters that didn't get a lot of page time in the first book that I was again, able to kind of dig into their backstories a little more in the second book. Um, And there are a lot of stories that I've put aside over the years that I wasn't able to get an agent with that I have been able to reuse. Like for example, the book I have coming out in 2025, it's called To Steal From Thieves. Um, I tried to query that before I queried Seven Faceless Saints. And that is the one I was talking about earlier when I said my agent offered a revise and resubmit because she liked the story, but it just wasn't quite working for her. Um, So what I did was I took the setting and the characters of that story And I refocused, I guess, the scope of the book so that one of the subplots, which was a heist, actually became the full plot of the book, more or less. Um, So I was able to rework a bunch of those ideas and essentially just pick them up and put them in a whole different plot, um, which is really handy. And I'm doing a sort of a similar thing right now with a couple of adult fantasy ideas that I have kicking around, but I won't go into those too much.
1: (laughs) All right. Now, To Steal from Thieves, is that a separate continuity from these two books then?
3: Yeah, yeah, okay. it's a whole different—it's a young adult still, but it's a historical fantasy. Um, so once again, I'm very big into the historical world-building stuff, but whereas Seven Faceless Saints was just loosely inspired by history, um, this one is actually set in 1851 in London during the Great Exhibition. Um, so there are still fantasy aspects. It's very much a historical fantasy where fantasy comes into play a lot. Um, but a lot more is accurate when it comes to the world because it actually does take place during that time.
1: It, it's funny you mentioned that because we had uh, we had Jason Tolbert on here uh, on Monday, and his oh, yeah. his book uh, has Magic in the Ottoman Empire. and I'm starting to Ooh. see, uh, some authors kind of lean into this historic fantasy category now. It, mm. is, th- is this becoming a trend? Uh, I mean, this is not alternative universe stuff like Harry Turtledove or alternate history type of things. You know, it's, it's I'm going to take a, an actual real historic event, time, place, and I'm going to set my fantastical elements in this real setting. Yeah, yeah. Are, 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 is, that, is this becoming a thing, I guess?
3: Um, That's an interesting question, actually, because like when I first conceived of my particular book, it was in, I want to say, like 2017 or something like that. And I was not remotely as entrenched in like, the book community as I am now, so I had no idea what was popular or not. Um, It was just a specific historical period that I was really interested in. Um, But I have seen a lot more recently that either are direct historical fantasy or they're very heavily based on a certain period of time. And personally, I love it because I'm kind of a history buff. Um, And I think it's really interesting to work within almost a framework of how historical, again, I'm into the politics and stuff. So I'm interested in the political framework and how you make that work in sort of a more fantastical, I guess, world. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know that I've seen a whole lot of it in adult. There are some for sure in adult, but I have seen quite a few in young adult, which is where I'm more, based i guess right now um but i I don't know if it's i don't know if it's a thing that's becoming more popular yet or not or if i'm just paying more attention to it now um if you know what i mean like i'm very aware of it because i'm writing it right yeah Um,
1: it's like seeing red red toyotas right after you buy a red toyota exactly Yeah. yeah
3: so it's hard for me to say whether it actually is becoming more popular or if i'm just more cognizant of it because i'm writing it
1: now, do you find that uh, Little Brown, as a publisher, is? I, I'm assuming you're you're thinking it's a good fit because you're still there. Uh, how yeah. how has how has that experience been working with them?
3: I love my publisher. Honestly, I know everybody has things that they could say about their publisher that are good and bad. And honestly, I don't have a lot of bad to say about them. Um, I think I really lucked out because when I was, well, when my agent was selling my book, um, I didn't know a lot about the submission process. Um, Obviously, I knew a lot about querying because I've been trying to get an agent for years, but I didn't know a lot about the different imprints, especially in young adult, and which ones were supposedly good and all of that kind of stuff. Um, And so I kind of just trusted my agent to go ahead and send me out to a bunch of different publishing imprints and hope for the best is essentially what happened. Um, And I think I was very lucky because I've ended up with a wonderful editor and her assistant is wonderful too. And I think right now I know a lot of people that are having a lot of issues with feeling like they're not getting enough publicity, Um, but my publicist is very responsive and I feel like, you know, I've gotten marketing and I don't feel like I'm being drowned out by all the other books that are coming out at the same time, Um, which I think happens to everybody at least a little bit. You always feel like you're worried you're going to kind of sink to the back in terms of everything else that's being released. Yeah. Um. But no, I am, I'm very happy with them.
1: Well, and, and it's interesting because I'm, I look at the spine, I see little Brown. I'm thinking, well, normally with stuff like this, you would see it from Tor, from Tor Forge, Ban, you know, that, that's it. Cause there's a certain group orbit is another mm-hmm. one. And I look at it Little Brown, I oh, I guess they do publish a genre. It's it's not it's <laughs> not the imprint that you first think of when it comes to fantasy stuff. So I it, I was true. just curious to see how that was working out. So well, it's
3: funny you say that actually because I believe when I was picked up by my editor, my book was actually her first. foray into working with fantasy. I think all of her works before that were contemporary, um, but she decided that she wanted to branch out a bit. And my book happened to be the one that she picked up in order to do that with. Um, And they do have other editors who had been working in it already, of course. But yeah, it's definitely not as well-known for fantasy as certain other imprints, but I think it's kind of building, especially with books like Belladonna um, by Adeline Grace that really blew up. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it's becoming more of a name. I, I always give the example that they published Twilight um, because everybody <laughs> seems to know that one. <laughs> and it's something of a fantasy, so
1: yeah, <laughs> it's just well, not the high fantasy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. When you, do you you talk about branching branching out into other genres, do you have any plans to do anything in the science fiction space as opposed to fantasy? I mean, Christopher, Christopher Paolini just did, you know, to was it To Drown in a Sea of Stars? To Swim in a Sea of... St- mm. To what? To sleep. to sleep in a Sea of Stars. So he did this... He does a science fiction book, and he's known for fantasy. Are mm-hmm. you thinking about... Do you have any ideas in, in other aspects of genre? You're just going to stick to the fantasy stuff?
3: Um, you know, I have had some certain ideas that are more science fiction, um, but I'm branching more into the adult sphere when it comes to fantasy, and I think... A lot of the fantasy that I'm reading right now and that's really blowing up is the romantic fantasy. Um, and so I'm trying to sort of get in there um, because I absolutely love that. Um, and I I hate to say this, but a lot of the young adult still is not, they're not really promoting the sci-fi. Um, and if I was going to write a sci-fi, I think I would write... In the young adult age category um and i know some people that have done amazing things in there um, like alicia dow writes in there and so does kate dylan and their books are fabulous um, but i think it's still a lot more difficult than people realize to sort of wiggle your way into the young adult sci-fi right um and you know i could i would definitely not rule it out i just don't know that that is where my strengths lie at the moment um but who knows maybe i'll give it a shot one day
1: well, I mean, uh who was it the 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 divergent the divergent books. She's she's done oh, some science fiction outside Veronica of Veronica Roth. Yeah, Veronica Roth. Yeah, she's yeah. she's done uh and and seems to have had some measure of success in science fiction uh as opposed yeah. to fantasy. So, you know, you you never know, right? Never it's say never.
3: True. It's true.
1: <laughs> so, what is next for you?
3: Um in terms of publishing, I am going to be well. Obviously, I'm going to be publishing *Disciples of Chaos* that comes out next week. Right. Um, but then I'm really going to be pivoting and focusing on my historical fantasy. So that, to steal from *Thieves* book, it is the first in another duology. Um, and so I'm going to be, I'm still going to be focusing on my YA, and it's still going to be fantasy. But I'm excited to take more of a historical approach to stuff and kind of draw in my my history buffs
1: (laughs) all right so i'm looking at your website here and oh yes you are self-described here fantasy author (laughs) coffee addict aspiring cult leader yes um uh that's more of a joke don't worry (laughs) well i was just gonna say which one is more of the threat the coffee thing or the cult thing (laughs) Uh, so depends
3: how much coffee.
1: Well, how do you prefer it? My coffee? Yeah.
3: Oh, I'm very specific about my coffee. It's terrible. Um, I do – this is terrible, but I do usually drink decaf because I take ADHD medication, and if I have too much caffeine, it's just a terrible combination. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but it has to be good coffee. I like it freshly ground, and uh, I'm the kind of person who puts – I know people are not going to like this, but I like to put, like, almond milk and stuff in it. So I'm very picky about my coffee, but then I ruin it with, with plant milk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, now, I'd, I I think that – I think Mrs. Boss might uh, might be in your camp there because she, she's drank nice. almond milk in, in the past. And was the last time you had a carton of almond milk in the refrigerator? I don't think I've seen one in a while.
2: Is that <laughs> – that's because I make
1: my own. That's right. That's right. You do. Ooh. I I keep I keep forgetting that. Yes. Yeah, she makes that's her own. That's impressive. It's been a while. It's been a while.
3: It's probably way better too. I always want to try, but I just I don't get my stuff together.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 not complicated, but it does take a little little bit of time. So Yeah, yeah. yeah that's one of those things. So, okay. So, uh, uh, aspiring cult leader what what kind of <laughs> efforts are you being uh, are you are you making toward that and and how far have you gotten in your progress?
3: <laughs> That's a very good question. It's funny that you ask me that because every so often I will get an email from some random man who wants to join my cult. Um, it's just a joke that I think is funny because I'm trying to build a fan base obviously for sure. my work. Um, and I always appreciate when I go to somebody's webpage and they They have something that catches my eye on it that kind of makes me giggle. So I'm not actually trying to start a cult, not yet. Um, But I am trying to build a fan base of people who enjoy my books, which is sort of the same thing. So I think my efforts are are going okay so far.
1: (laughs) What you could do with that is yeah you know, here here's your here's your an opportunity to monetize your fan base because what you can do is you start your cult and your fan base becomes <laughs> your you know you know sign up for the newsletter and your membership and whatnot and then that cult becomes the main element of one of your your story series. There and you say, go. For X amount of dollars you can be a character in my book. Join the cult that's, and be part of yeah, the story. Yeah, that's,
3: that's a very good idea. Maybe I'll start working on that next, mem- my, mem- my cult
1: fantasy. Yeah, m- membership has <laughs> its privileges, right? You know. And for extra, I'll really kill you in a gory fashion. It's just front and center, and it's just really high-impact stuff, right?
3: You can decide the manner of your death. There you go. How about that? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So is there a story that's just really burning in the back of your brain that you haven't felt like you're ready to tell yet?
3: Oh, um, I mean, I have an adult project, like I said, that I'm working on right now, um, which was the one that was sitting in my brain for the last few years. And I'm finally getting it out there. Um, But I also have a... I would say a very complicated sort of dark more dark academia idea um, that I need to do a lot more research into before I even start thinking about how to put that on the page so yeah we'll see if I get there
1: yeah. <laughs> I'm very busy what are what are the pros and cons for you working in the YA space as a, as opposed to adult space in terms of the kind of stories you're you're wanting to tell
3: um, I mean, I started writing in the YA space first, because it's where I tended to read more. Mm. Um, and so I was just more familiar with the structure and the different authors and what was popular. Um, and I still do read a ton of YA. And I'm very into the more fast paced, simple, kind, not simple, but I guess easier to understand stories, because I have a heck of a time sometimes wrapping my brain around the more complicated world building, which is rich of me to say as someone who puts a lot of political influence and historical influence into my world building. But my focus is not great. Um, But now that I'm now that I'm older, obviously, I've been reading a lot more adult fantasy that I think, well, I love every type of adult fantasy, but I'm seeing a lot of adult that draws more from that fast paced YA thing that people were really loving. Um, And so I think it's become kind of More accepted to take these things that people love about the YA genre and implement them in something that's more directed at adults. And I think that's what makes me want to move into that sphere more. um, Is that I'm seeing that the things that I do enjoy writing for teens, I can also implement into books for an older audience. Um, And I don't think I saw that for a while. And again, maybe I wasn't looking because. That's not the type of thing that I was writing, right? Um, but it does seem to be growing in popularity, especially with the whole romanticy movement. Um, <laughs> and I'm a big romance fan as well. I love the fantasy sci-fi, but I also love the romance. So the combination of both of them, um, I would say that's probably what really made me want to move into the, the writing for adults. So we'll see if I if I do that successfully.
1: <laughs> uh, you've, you've mentioned your ADHD a couple of times now let me ask this cuz yes. there's there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of discussion especially online recently uh, especially in in the aftertimes you know post pandemic there's been a lot of discussion online about mental health and self care and all of that how how has writing or or has it even how has that what's what's the, the way have you noticed a difference in your ADHD now that you are writing full time i'm assuming you're writing full time you're you know you talk about structuring your stories you're making your outlines you're doing you're planning things out does the ADHD inhibit that or is the stuff that you're doing help you cope with that more how how does that work how do those two go together
3: I think it's a mix, but also I don't write full-time. Until two weeks ago, I had a full-time job with the government. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I actually am on just a few months leave right now to work on this deadline um, because this is the first time I have the financial ability to do that. But until two weeks ago, I was working at least 40 hours a week. For the government, so it was—it was a lot for sure. So, um, so,
1: so fellow government drone here, Mrs. Boss, and <laughs> almond milk. I mean, y'all are kindred spirits, I think.
3: Amazing. We should be friends. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but in terms of writing, I think it's interesting because I think. My lack of focus, for lack of a better term, is both helpful and not helpful. Um, like, I'm very good at getting into a very hyper focused space um, where I can write for hours and hours and forget to eat food or take a shower or live my human life, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's both useful in terms of getting stuff done, but also not useful in terms of living a balanced life. Yeah. And also, sometimes you're looking for that hyper focused state and you cannot. Find it because you don't really get to pick when it happens. I've noticed. Yeah. Um, and another thing that I find both useful but not useful is that I need to be able to see everything at the same time when I'm editing, and so I'll have like a whiteboard of all my ideas, and I will I will have my Scrivener open, and I need my sidebars full of my <laughs> plot points, and I'm not good at organizing it in my brain, so I need to see it around me all the time, which is both very overwhelming, but also very useful. Um, And so I do, I do forget a lot of the things that I've written previously. And so I am surrounded at all times by little notes in a way that is completely unhinged, but it it works for me.
1: (laughs) So the, the hyper focus and the, you know, the diving down into the rabbit hole and, and that kind of thing, you know, there are other impacts that that has uh you you're now a a a a published author and i imagine that probably uh, does that change the dynamic with friends families and even other how are they looking at this now that you've got a a book you've your second book is coming out your third book i mean this is your new thing how (laughs) what what, what's the response been with with your circle?
3: Uh, everyone is very supportive. It's been lovely. Um, like my parents are very proud, and my even my grandparents are trying to read my books, which <laughs> I do not want them to. But you know, they want to, to support me. Sure.
2: Um,
3: and everybody's everybody's very interested to hear about the process. Um, and it's funny to kind of try and tell that to people who aren't as deeply in the publishing sphere as I am, because I don't think a lot of people understand like how many hoops you have to jump to to actually make your book be published. Um, at least I don't know a lot about self-publishing, so I won't speak to that, but at least when it comes to traditional publishing, like all the people that are involved in all the steps that come into actually getting your book on a shelf. Um, like everybody's always surprised to learn that I am writing my book two years before it's actually going to be out. Like right now I'm working on the sequel to my 2025 book that will be out in 2026. Um, And so everybody's always very interested, but very surprised to kind of look behind the curtain at how traditional publishing works. Yeah. Um, But I love the interest. Like I love talking about publishing, obviously. So it's, it's fun for me to explain it to people who don't really know anything about it otherwise. And even though it's a little embarrassing to try and explain what my books are about to people, um, <laughs> it is very nice that everybody's so interested.
1: <laughs> well, and, and how has your headspace changed now that you're a professional published author? I remember you know, in the past, cause I've been in, I've been in media now for almost 40 years, you know, I make TV commercials, web videos and stuff. I've, I've made movies and, and, Neighbors, people, when they learn what I do, oh, that's so cool! And I kind of take it for mm-hmm. granted. I was like, "Well, this is just the job. This is just what I do." How mm-hmm. how how has your self perception evolved in all of this? I mean, I'm, I'm 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 guessing that you've had a little bit of self discovery, what you're capable of doing, what you're capable of handling. You know how you deal with. Uh, roadblocks and stumbles, and you know you've got to do some course corrections and stuff. What, what what's that been like?
3: Um, you know, it's interesting because i've I've done a lot of self learning in terms of being able to put my work out there for the first time. Um, I think it was a lot harder than I thought it would be which sounds silly to say, but I think when you've been trying to get published for so long, you're so focused on that light at the end of the tunnel and how awesome it's going to be. And it kind of doesn't hit you that it's also very scary to put your work out there and finally have like people that you don't know giving you feedback and you feel a little bit overwhelmed. And it can be like, it can hurt you at the start before you're used to getting that kind of feedback. Um, but I've really been able to sort of teach myself how to block that out as I'm working on my other books. Um, And I think that was very useful for me because as somebody who is, I'm very driven by other people's opinion of my work. Like I want people to think I'm doing a good job and I want people to be proud of what I'm doing. And I was always the student in school who's like the teacher's pet perfectionist, which I think a lot of writers say. (laughs) And so this is this has been a chance for me to really kind of find the drive within myself and not focus on external validation or lack thereof and figure out what I want to do with my work and how I'm going to make it happen without listening to all the voices that are everywhere. (laughs) Um, And so that's been, that's been good for me, I think, but in terms of my life changing, I mean, like I said, I was still working full-time at my regular job. And so, A lot of people didn't even know that I was, well, they knew I was publishing a book, but they didn't understand like the deadlines and the scope of it. And so that aspect of my life didn't really change a whole lot. Um, I think people, at least in my job and stuff like that, mostly assumed that I'm just writing books for fun and putting them out there, which I am in a sense, but it's also very involved. Um, So it's been busy, but I I don't think a whole lot about my life has changed until now that I'm... I'm finally taking some time off work for the first time.
1: No. All right. Well, the book that is out next week, Disciples of Chaos, it is the second book in a duology. Uh, and it is uh, it is coming out from Little Brown. And the website uh, to learn more about MK, mklob.com. Uh, she's also on Instagram and on Twixer. So uh, you can check uh, you can check her out uh, over there. We've got all the links to these in the notes for any of you who are interested in learning more about her. M. Kayla, thanks very much for being here, and good luck with uh, with Thank everything. Thanks for having me. And we'll we'll have to we'll have to bring you back when when the next book comes out. We'll talk about that one.
3: Absolutely, I would love that. Thank you so much.
1: Okay, and <laughs> when we get back, we will uh, have more. ...with you guys. So don't go anywhere. We will be right back... ...after this. Live from the bunker. We'll be right back on Sci-Fi For Me Radio.
0: Sci-Fi For Me is about to take you... ...on an incredible journey... ...into the realms of science fiction... ...fantasy and horror. Interviews with writers, filmmakers... ...artists and actors conventions and fandom previews and reviews of movies and television sci-fi for me is working to be the most popular science fiction magazine in the solar system subscribe now and enter the fantastic world of sci-fi for me delivering the multiverse since 2009 that's
2: a really good question (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, that's a great question. That's a good question. That's a good question. But that's a really good question. That's a great question. When
0: you need to know, count on Sci-Fi For Me to be there asking all of the questions.
2: That's been a question I've been asking myself quite a lot. That's a tough question. This is
1: a rough question.
3: That is a, that, that is a deep question.
2: Bringing you news and
0: opinion from all over the web. Sci-Fi For Me, delivering the multiverse since 2009.
1: All right, it's time. It's time. Here we go, I'm just gonna do it. All right, it is the third hour. Which means it's your turn. You can join the show, share your thoughts, ask your questions, rant. Pin that, pin that. All right. It is pinned to the top, at least in uh, in Odyssey and YouTube. I can't pin it. I can't pin it in Rumble. I got to say, there there are some things about Rumble that I just don't like. Just be caught. Todd sitting there still waiting. Everybody everybody just uh you know, hi Todd. A <laughs> Couple of other items uh in because I mentioned I mentioned before the before the second hour, uh this Bewitched series reboot. I wanna take a look at this here because I don't know about this. Writer-producer Judalina Nira, The Boys, Daisy Jones and the Six, has signed an overall deal with Sony Pictures Television focused on developing drama series for cable and streaming through her newly launched production company, Famous Last Words Productions. For her first project under the pack, Nira is taking on a signature Sony title, Bewitched. (coughs) Okay. (coughs) Excuse me. Written by Nira... The new Bewitched is described as an irreverent, uh uh-oh, hour-long reimagination, uh-oh, of the classic TV series. She's executive producing alongside the Goldbergs executive producer Doug Robinson and Lauren Moffat of Sony TV, based Doug Robinson Productions. According to sources, Nera and Sony TV had started conversations about the Bewitched reboot That evolved into an overall deal agreement, the first such pact for the rising rider producers. So this project is what got her the overall development deal. So they must really be impressed with this idea. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good idea, but they're excited about it. Nera most recently served as executive producer on the upcoming fourth season of Sony's TV Sony TV's superhero hit The Boys for Prime Video. And on another Prime Video series, horror dark comedy The Horror of Dolores Roach. She has also worked with Sony TV on the boys offshoot Gen V as a co executive producer. So Okay, so all of that talking about her background and whatnot. Um one-hour drama version of Bewitched, which has always been a comedy. I'm not sure about that. I'm And, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if it's inspired by what they did with Bel Air. And you see this every now and again. You take a comedy idea, like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you make it into a drama. It's a completely different kind of story when you do that, when you reframe it like that. And with, with Bewitched, there's potential... Well, I... I don't know. I mean, there's potential for some pretty strong stories that you could tell in a drama setting with that. But just off the top of my head, the first things that I'm starting to think about is the fact that you have a witch who's having to hide who she is. She's having to hide the fact that she's a witch. Hide the fact that she's got magic. And that immediately my brain goes to LGBT alphabet soup stuff. Just because. Because everybody is doing that. They are trying... You know, we talked about the X-Men earlier. There are so many keyboard warriors out there that are trying to make the X-Men all about the LGBTQ community. And it didn't quite start that way. But okay. That's the only... That's the only thing that I think... is, Is that kind of drama could be driven by something like that, you know, allegorically... Might not actually be a good thing. I don't know. Michael, Michael, I'm not sure that that's the angle they're going to take. Samantha's a witch, two Darren's. If you go with pagan, polygamy, polyamory is only one step further. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, well, um, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Uh, Road Vagabond Life earlier asked who will play Endora and Uncle Arthur. You know who if they were still doing a comedy, you know who could play Uncle Arthur. Um uh oh crap, what's his name? Uh who was in the bird cage with who was in the birdcage with Robin Robin Williams? What's his name? Um, oh now that you say that, uh, I hate you. Uh, what's his name? What's his name? um crap okay hang on because he just got cast in something here not too long ago let me look let me look let me look um Nathan Lane thank you Nathan Lane yes Nathan Lane Nathan Lane as Uncle Arthur that works for me I I I could get on board with Nathan Lane as Uncle Arthur and it actually kind of it could work it could work either way you know comedy or drama i think you could do nathan lane as as uncle arthur in in both settings in both i think that could work in dora yeah. i think it's going to depend on who they get to play samantha because if they if they go with um tradwife Type of setting because the original concept was Yes, I'm a witch, but I'm Darren's wife. And it's, you know, I just want to have a normal life, a normal family. And Endora was the one that was always saying, Oh, you know, you need you're you're better than this. You're a witch. You're better than this. If you have somebody as Samantha who leans into the I just want to be normal. Then whoever plays Endora has to be over the top. thing. unless what if? Ooh, here's here's another possibility. What if this bewitched follows Tabitha? I'm not saying it's going to. I don't know. It's a reimagining of the original series so it's more than likely it's going to be Samantha Darren. <coughs> Uh, Road Vagabond Life says, I wanted to add, I'm impressed that you use a tablet instead of a mouse. It took me a long time to get accustomed to using why you use an XP-Pen. This, this, uh, this is one of those things where uh, I use this tablet here uh, mainly because of my work in graphic design, Photoshop, uh, video editing. And this is, this is how we did it in the TV stations where I've worked. And you just start, you just start getting used to it, and it gives you a little bit more control, especially if you're working in Photoshop. It gives you a little bit more control than you would otherwise have with just a regular mouse, you know. Because I have, I have, I have mice. I have, I have, I have mice too. But uh, the pen tablet gives me a little bit more specific control, especially when I'm doing masks, or if I'm erasing stuff and you know trimming stuff out. So. Uh, Keeley says it's sad that there wasn't an I Dream of Genie movie and reboot. There actually was. It wasn't a reboot. It was a sequel. There were two of them. Two, two movies. At least two movies. Um, there was uh, there were reunion movies back in the day. That's how they did them. They did reunion movies. Oh, you had the Brady bunch in well yeah the Brady Bunch did a bunch of stuff, but there were I think it I think two. I dream of genie movies. One of them was, you know, I dream of genie 15 years later or something, and then they did another I dream of genie where Wayne Rogers replaced Larry Hagman as Tony. And in that movie they had to set up for whatever whatever the scenario was, Tony ended up getting his memory erased, and he never he, they fixed it so he never met Jeannie and some something some plot device thing and so she ends up at the end of the movie she bumps into him and and there's the hint that they're going to meet again and and go into uh things so uh so the, yeah, there's been a couple of uh, a couple of things. Uh, for I Dream a Genie, there hasn't been a full-blown reboot, um, so uh, that's that's something to uh, to look at. So, um, yes, you have something there.
2: So, just when you get a thought, um, look at your phone.
1: Yeah, I just saw that
2: apparently the car is touch and go
1: <laughs> so all right so so my kid gets in, gets in touch with us apparently the catalytic converter on his car is either
2: someone tried to steal
1: it either somebody tried well i talked to him after he said he the either somebody started to try to take it and got interrupted and spooked off or because you're, because this is the car that got stolen and the catalytic converter was taken from it the first time. So this is a replacement catalytic converter. He says the guy who was looking at it thinks that maybe it wasn't attached properly. So it may not be that somebody tried to steal it. It may just be falling off because it was installed badly. And now it's kind of dragging. <laughs> and now it's kind of dragging. All right. Well, that's that's uh, that's and the thing. So I may have to go deal with that.
2: His shift tonight because he the cars.
1: What time, What time's the shift? Six. P- well, it, we could. Oh, Any. Anyway, we'll address that later. Live television, ladies and gentlemen.
2: <coughs> live right. television. Live problems. No aliens involved, <sighs> unfortunately. I tell We're you. We're waiting I for it. You. We really need it.
1: Uh, new a new project. Uh, this is a, a new a new thing. We'll do this, and then maybe we'll cut it short so I could go help him out. Uh, Amazon Prime Video snaps up international rights to Flying Lotus's sci-fi thriller *Ash*, starring Aiza Gonzalez and Aaron Paul. This is Deadline uh, today. Uh, in the biggest. Acquisition to emerge so far at the nascent EFM, so I guess European film market, we understand Amazon Prime Video has sewn up a deal with XYZ for international rights to Aiza Gonzalez and Aaron Paul sci-fi thriller Ash, the sophomore feature from producer, rapper, and filmmaker Flying Lotus. We hear this is a high seven-figure pact nearing $10 million. Talks had been underway for a little while, and the deal closed up this week. Gonzalez will play a woman who wakes up on a distant planet and finds the crew of her space station viciously killed. She must decide whether she can trust the man sent to rescue her. Played by Aaron Paul. Uh, Aiko Uwais, uh, Beulah Cole, and Kate Elliott also star. Movie is in post-production. Okay, so... Couple of things here. Amazon's spending ten million dollars on this movie. Now remember, we had we had just this thing happen with Argyle. Argyle is listed in the numbers as a two hundred billion dollar movie. That's the amount of money that Apple spent to acquire the rights to the movie. That's not how much the movie was made for. Argyle's budget, I understand, was about $100 million. Now, if Prime Video, if Amazon Prime is spending $10 million to acquire this picture, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, possibly, this is what we've been talking about. Hollywood needs a small budget, self-contained, smaller production that doesn't cost an arm and a leg and a head and three scalps in your and your firstborn child sign sign your life away in blood or maybe we're, we're getting the inexpensive sci-fi movies coming back
2: or you can take the 10 million it's kind of like when you go out and you go <coughs> shopping and you're looking at your options you can get the movie. That may be you. Know, you know, hey, that sounds great. Or you can get one episode of She-Hulk.
1: We're not getting any more episodes of She-Hulk.
2: <laughs> no, I'm just saying for the ten million dollars.
1: She-Hulk's gone, baby. <laughs> that's right. All right, we're gonna be gone. Um, I'm not. I, I'm going. To, I'm gonna look into more on this whole thing about Morph being non-binary or whatnot. Um, if that's true, then. That might be a problem, but we'll look. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you can connect with us on various different social media platforms and whatnot. Uh, go ahead and subscribe. I, I really would like to get us up back up to 2500 on YouTube. Uh, we're not there. we're at 24.99. We're at 24.99. it's picking up. We need to get one more. Actually we need to get about five or six, seven more. In order to just make sure that we're over that threshold and we're and we're continuing forward, uh, because it's you know one step forward, two steps back with a lot of this stuff. Um, there's a newsletter you can sign up for. Of course, you can always send us an email live from the bunker at sci fi for mecom and we will be back tomorrow with open line. It's, today's Thursday, right? Yeah, open line Friday tomorrow. <sighs> And then we'll do it all again next week. David Levine's going to be here. Harry Turtledove will be here. Christopher Riorchio will be here. So that's we're almost full next week, too. And we will just keep going, I guess. I don't know. We'll see. All right. That's it for us today. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Remember, the 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 politicians hate you. Some of them are scared of you. The media lies to you. Don't trust the bankers very much either. But God has a plan for you, and he does. Sometimes it takes a while to find it, but he's got one for you. And there are four lights.
0: This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio, copyright 2024, by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi for Me Radio.